That's what I would do. That's the first thing I would do. I'd go build the team. I'd get a realtor. I'd get all those people I just talked about. And then the process just kind of works for itself. Like once you already get that first house done, you have the first tenants in there and you can kind of rinse and repeat that same process. So Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. We're going to have a little real estate roundup today, just picking each other's brains about our experiences in real estate. But before we get into that, let me check in with my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. This uh, this started that kind of gauntlet of weekends. We're going to be gone all the way through the end of July, so it's kind of crazy. But this past one was one we've been very excited about for a long time, which was Big Ben. So we went down to Big Ben for like four days, and then we did a day in Marfa, which if you've never heard of Marfa, Texas, it's this tiny random town that has somehow became like pop culture centric. Like I, I think Beyonce has come through there. Um, a lot of people just go out there to visit and to look at their art and to go to these little shops and different restaurants. But it's this kind of, for lack of a better term, kind of bougie spot out in the middle of nowhere in Texas. Like it's just hours from anything. But it's only about an hour outside of Big Ben. Big Ben was awesome. Highly recommend it. I never could have imagined anything like that was in Texas. And we were nervous there for a while the trip wasn't even going to happen because they'd had some fires down there. And our camping spots got canceled like a couple days before. We were supposed to be staying in the park, but we jumped on Airbnb um, and made it work, and it turned out to be an awesome trip. Well, that sounds awesome, and I didn't even know that existed, and I didn't know that was a thing in Texas, but maybe I'll have to come check it out when I come down there later this year. Yeah, it's like giant canyons, uh, mountain ranges. Like it's, you know, the river runs through there, you know, it's separating Mexico and the United States. So actually, even at one point, we got to get in the canyon, and you technically go and touch Mexico because uh, you're, you're right there on the border. Sweet. Well, I did not have as many travels, but it was a big weekend for Massachusetts. The mask off rule was finally enacted on, I think, Saturday night it was. And so, you know, of course, at midnight, they're playing mask off by future at every bar in the city. And so my girlfriend, Lauren, is actually traveling in California, visiting a friend right now. So it's kind of a guy's weekend, kind of rains off, definitely had too many drinks. And like I said, all the bars are just full capacity, no masks, kind of a celebration of, I think Massachusetts is actually nearing 80% vaccination rate, which is just insane. I've seen some of the charts, not even other states, like we're kind of crushing it, but around the world, I mean, we're one of the only countries that has higher than like a 40% vaccination rate across the nation, which is just, it's amazing to see the turnaround that America has kind of had from handling the pandemic really, really poorly to kind of crushing it with the vaccination stuff. So Definitely a fun weekend. I, again, lost my voice a little bit again, but we're here, we're doing this thing, and we're going to be chatting about real estate today. And if you guys want to kind of get a quick little summary of what we talked about today, again, it's just going to be us picking each other's brains. You can do all that stuff at thefiveshow.com slash real estate roundup. But before we get into that, let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth 
is just they look at it as a big burden and this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have these can be loans these can be 401ks these can be hsas bank accounts credit cards they're all linked there the other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you wanna use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. So as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to be talking all things real estate today, a little real estate roundup, if you will, because we had four amazing real estate guests, all kind of focusing on their own things. We had Andrew Kerr, who is all about house hacking. We had Scott Trench, who kind of went the real estate corporate side, corporate route of real estate. We had Scott Crone, who talked about self-storage and green investing. And then this past week, we had on Alex Felice, who's kind of doing a smorgasbord of real estate investing, but all four of them are kind of crushing it in their own niche. So Justin, let's kind of just... You know, take a 30,000 step back or step up into the into the sky and kind of look at this thing. What was real estate like growing up? Like, you know, how did you conceptualize it? Was it a thing that your parents talked about, like, you know, buying the house, paying the mortgage, stuff like that? Or was it something that you more recently started to become accustomed to? Yeah. So I definitely didn't think about real estate like from an investment perspective till a very long time or still very later in life. But I think, you know, one interesting thing I could kind of notice from the way real estate was for us growing up is the difference between generations. We lived in like a single wide trailer my first, and then after that, we moved into the house that my mom still lives in. So she's been living there for almost 30 years. And I think about how many locations I've lived in since then. And that's that comes with a lot of different decisions. You know, when you think about the price to put a house on the market, the closing costs, all those things, like you have to factor that in. And sometimes I notice people not doing that. The people who are living a very transient life, not thinking about, oh, well, if I'm only in this for three years, my numbers are a little different than if I'm going to be in it for 20 years. Much, you know, obviously that's different if you um, plan on maybe keeping it and renting it out. But if you're thinking about just buying a house, praying for appreciation, and then selling it, like I think that's a consideration that, especially for our generation, it's just different. Like we 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 move a lot more than our parents did. Yeah, I kind of had a similar. Now that I'm thinking about it, I had a similar background where I lived in the same house my entire life growing up. Like your mom for 30 years. It was just a sec. It was just an afterthought. Like I never even thought of like a house as something you buy, and you know it could be an investment, and it costs this much, and this is the mortgage. I don't know why. Like my parents were really good about talking about saving, but I just never pieced that together. I never really understood like how much a mortgage was relative to other expenses. It just wasn't something. Like I said, it was just an afterthought. It was just the place that we went home and slept. <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> that was pretty much my uh, childhood real estate. And again, it wasn't until like financial independence and all that stuff when I'm like, wow, this could be a huge vehicle for early retirement. For sure. So I guess as you start going through you know, life and you're moving around, I know you've moved, I mean, 10 plus times at this point, Justin, but you've been a renter for all your life now. And I know there's a huge debate, not only amongst financial independence people, but just people in general, but there are huge advantages. Obviously, there's going to be disadvantages and advantages to renting and buying, but you know, you're the king of having the lowest expenses ever. Like, what are some of those advantages for, let's just have a disclaimer, like obviously real estate isn't something that everybody should get into. We're not we're not preaching that. I know you asked Alex in the last episode, but you know, what are some of those benefits to renting that maybe don't get talked about as much? Yeah, so I mean, you know, you think about like risk and trying to project like your expenses longer term. If I'm renting, my risk is, my only risk is really inflation. Um, I don't have to worry about, 
you know, the roof going out. It need a new air conditioner. I know a lot of times like those horror stories keep people away from investing. A lot of times they're somewhat unfounded. Like not everyone runs into those problems, but it's definitely a benefit. The other benefit is, which I know you can do through house hacking. You know, you find a place with roommates, split it with your partner, whatever it might be, and you can find some really good deals. You're also, you know, we talked about that moving around standpoint. If I want to move tomorrow, it's really not a big deal. I mean, as long as, as long as my lease is flexible or I plan, you know, when it's going to be up, I can move locations very quickly and not be carrying the mortgage of the house I've moved out of plus the new place I'm going to. And now maybe, you know, you're curious, like, okay, those are some of the benefits. Obviously, there's a lot of benefits to buying, but why personally have I not bought my own properties? Well, I kind of first started discovering this stuff. I lived in Colorado Springs. Hindsight 2020 would have been an amazing place to have bought a house, but I just was not in that place in life. Like I didn't, I was just starting to kind of understand my finances, just starting to, I didn't even really start hearing about real estate investing until much later into that part of my life until I, and didn't really start learning more about it until I moved to Boston. Then in Boston, you know, you start hearing these things about the 1% rule and you know, Cody, I know you've figured a way to do it. I believe it took, you know, getting out further away from the city, but I was looking at places around where I was and you couldn't even get close to a 1% rule. I mean, if you bought a $600,000 apartment, do you think you could rent it for 6,000? No, <laughs> like maybe you could get 2000 for it. So maybe you get a third of a percent, you know, if you get a good deal and find a $600,000 apartment and then you get a good deal and can charge 2000 for it. So the percentages just didn't make any sense to me. And I, I also, at that point, you know, did not feel comfortable with long distance investing. And I still haven't quite gotten over that hump to feel comfortable to invest from a long distance. Now I've moved to Austin. Austin is in one of the craziest real estate. Like people are paying, it's not uncommon to see people paying over $100,000 over asking price for a home. And the prices make no sense from, a, from like a buy and hold long-term rental they only make sense if you're betting on the appreciation to continue. So it's been a mix of this risk profile where I'm like, okay, it's a known quantity. I know I could maybe get there a little faster through real estate, but with my extremely high savings rate, I mean, we're talking about months here difference. And I've got this known quantity and the cities I've lived in. No doubt if I lived in a certain location in the country, I would absolutely be be buying some properties. Yeah, I think location, that's the that's the key word here. Because when I first started looking, and you know, obviously we have interviewed now over a hundred different entrepreneurs, real estate investors, just people who have done amazing things to create passive income. And we kept hearing real estate over and over and over again. So, you know, I start setting up all the alerts and I had like filters for my area. I'm like, okay, I want a multifamily between these price ranges. I was looking just in, you know, central to eastern Massachusetts. And you're right, like the numbers just didn't work. And I did end up getting a pretty good deal on the property that we're living in now and nothing out towards Boston made any financial sense from a financial independence, like make money standpoint. Or like I might've mentioned before, for people who do listen to the podcast regularly, I jumped the border down to Connecticut and the price of rent just made a whole lot more sense. Now, I think it's probably because they are a struggling state. Their just state economy isn't as strong as surrounding states, but you know, it's 45 minutes from Worcester, 45 minutes from Providence. Like I just kind of found a sweet spot where you know, it was a great renter market and it was like a decent place to live. And, you know, sometimes it's really hard to find that, but man, it still took like a, it still took so much searching. Like I remember the first one that Lauren and I were going to close on and we were going through a final inspection. And this is after I've done like my due diligence. I think Scott Trench said something like, make sure you do between 500 and a thousand hours, I think was the baseline. And I had definitely done that. Like between 
literally interviewing people on a podcast, reading books, listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, and we're ready to close on this property. Thought I was going to crush it. I was like, this is a home run deal, blah, blah, blah. And we find out that the whole place has like knob and tube wiring that's active and pretty unsafe. There was a lot of other mechanical issues that we wouldn't have known. Like, you know, I'm not going and turning the tub faucet at the initial walkthrough. That's just kind of weird. <laughs> but, but when the inspector did it, it fell off. <laughs> so we uh, we learned a really hard lesson that, you know, what? there's some places look like they're going to be home run deals, but you really, really, really have to do your due diligence. I think that's going to be a recurring theme of this episode and like just of the things I've learned. You have to be dotting all of your I's and crossing all of your T's because you can it can really come back to bite you if you're not doing all that homework up front. But yeah, I mean, the initial push for me, I know you just mentioned like why you've been renting. And I mean, the reason I did was honestly just kind of just jumping into the deep end. I just wanted to get my feet wet. I saw so many people doing it. I'm like, I can probably figure this out. Yes, I think our friend Gwen says, dividends don't sell drugs, meaning she had like the most hellish tenants ever and it was just a nightmare and you can totally get that. But for me, it was worth the risk was worth the reward. I was like, I'm going to try this. You know, I'm going to set up a screening process. I'm going to put these leases together. I'm going to try to figure out some kind of system where I can find properties that will, you know, give me a monthly cash flow, even though I could go and, you know, get index funds, get some other more passive opportunity that, again, the dividends don't sell jokes. <laughs> That's kind of ultimately why I get into it. Yeah. And I guess and another thing I didn't mention, um, you know, we're going over like maybe why I was renting and some of the advantages. Obviously, you know, sometimes people compare like average rent and I hate anything where you Google like a rule of thumb or an average or whatever, because it's just not very helpful. You know, like I had friends in Boston who were single paying almost $3,000 a month for a place. But me and Leslie split a $1,600 place that had all the utilities included, plenty of space. We loved our apartment. And so it's $800 a person versus $3,000 a person. So yes, if you get online and you start Googling and you look at averages, like sometimes things can be like, oh, well, this makes 100% sense. Like you definitely need to look at your specific situation. It's kind of like when we've talked with different house hacker specialists on the podcast, like it's not for everyone, but it could be, you know, a way to go. I also think, you know, we've been talking about this geography piece. And so I'm interested, Cody, if you remember some of the numbers from closer into Boston, some of those kind of prices versus rent, and then maybe some of the rent to mortgage ratios you've started seeing in the numbers in Connecticut. And then, you know, I can kind of talk about the Mississippi angle, which is definitely a lot of people probably will be shocked by those numbers. (laughs) Yeah. So initially, when I first got into all of this, like I was setting up the alerts, like I said, for specific zip codes, I kind of knew where I wanted to buy. And like, there's a really popular street in the town over, the city over in, in Worcester. And I was like, you know, I'm going to buy a triple decker there. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to have good young, you know, professionals in there. And I was guessing, and this is before I did any of my initial research and was like getting these automated emails and stuff. And I was like, I'll probably be like $300,000 and I was going to house hack. And I was like, I'll need like $15,000 down with, you know, the 3.5% down that you can get with an FHA loan plus some closing costs, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, perfect. I start doing my searches and there's not one place for less than (laughs) $450,000. And each of these, like probably comfortably, like in this area, each floor could rent for like $1,500. So I was like, before I thought it was going to be way over the 1% rule. But now, like if I'm renting each floor for $1,500 and buy a place for $450K, which is way more money, I'm just at the 1% rule. So this has to be like an absolute home run of a deal. So that was like central to kind of creeping into Boston, Massachusetts, when my buddy Mike told me, he's like, dude, hop the border. Like the price to rent just makes so much more sense. That first property that I bought, bought for $235,000. 
and gross rent right now, and one of them is under market, is $3,000 a month. So I actually have a good buffer. Like I could literally have one of my tenants not be in there and I'd still be making the mortgage, property taxes, insurance, and have a little bit of a buffer for random repairs, lawn care, all that stuff. So the numbers were just astronomically different. And so that's why I started looking down there. I, that's I set up my automated alerts down there. Got just my whole kind of team set up down there. And that's another really important thing that actually I think Dustin Heiner was, what episode number was that that he was on? Just look up Dustin Heiner, Fi Show. But he was one who said, just like get a team in place. And I know it can be super scary. It's not like, yes, it's out of state investing. It was still like, it's just a little over an hour of a drive for me. So in case I needed to go down there, but that was the most important thing I did, honestly, was like, get the plumbers, get the electricians, get someone who just does general tinkering and like handyman work, get lawn care, get snow removal. Like once you get all that stuff and it's within a you know, certain geographic location, like obviously that would be hard if you just had like one rental property in every state. But if I want to go invest in say Mississippi, like I would, that's what I would do. That's the first thing I would do. I'd go build the team. I'd get a realtor. I'd get all those people I just talked about. And then the process just kind of works for itself. Like once you already get that first house done, you have the first tenants in there then you can kind of rinse and repeat that same process. So that's what I ended up doing in the next one. And then the one I closed on a couple of weeks ago after that, I already had all the systems in place, already had the leases drafted, just kind of had to tweak them. And, you know, obviously every property has its quirks, but once you have that kind of once you have it set and the numbers work, I know that was the initial question here. I'm kind of rambling, but once you get the numbers to work and you have a location where the price to rents, like Scott Trench was saying, if you have a place where, you know, every week or every two weeks, there's a home run deal, you know that that, and you're analyzing like hardcore, looking at the numbers, looking at the sell prices, you know that you're going to have winners pop up in that market. So I'm still every day looking at those automated emails I get. If anyone's like, what the heck are you talking about? Hit up any realtor you know, or if you don't know one, you know, go on the bigger pockets group. We probably have some realtors in our the Five Show group, honestly. They can set up in any zip code as long as they're licensed in that state. And you could say, hey, you know, I want to set up these zip codes in Arizona and I want to look at two plus bedrooms that are under three hundred thousand dollars that come on the market. And every morning, if something gets listed with that criteria, that will come directly to your inbox. You don't have to go on Zillow and be like, you know, scrolling all over the place and then go and check Redfin or whatever, all these different databases. You can get it straight from the MLS, the multiple listing service, and kind of just, you know, start looking. You don't have to buy. You don't even have to put offers in. You don't even have to tour the places. Just start to get a feel for the market that's around you. See what the numbers are like. Because like you asked, Justin, like that's such an important part and a reason why it stops people in their tracks. Like people will be in Boston. They'll be like, well, I'm not going to buy a $900,000 apartment because the... I mean, prices have skyrocketed in the past year, but, you know, go two hours over the border to Rhode Island, Connecticut, even up in like New Hampshire, there's deals to be found. So I think, yeah, just venture a little bit out of your comfort zone, build that team up. That was a long winded answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. And you're, you're talking about those automated emails. And even though I actually haven't pulled the trigger and bought a house yet, I get, I have a realtor in Mississippi who sends me those automated emails. And when I tell people about the prices, they're always just shocked. You know, it's like <laughs> I was looking at a place and the funny thing is a guy I played like high school football with actually owns it. I realized after looking through some of the deeper information and I've been trying to get in touch with him. But anyways, it's like a, a three bed, two bath, like it's two story, kind of skinny, not a lot of square footage house. It's fairly close into, you know, the city that it's in, uh, close to the, the community college. I think it'd be pretty easy to rent. They're currently, it's already currently being rented for 600 And I think, you know, with some slight touches, you could probably bump that up a little bit and they want 50,000 for it. You know, it's like <laughs> there's these houses everywhere for 50 to $60,000 across Mississippi. And yes, the ratios are similar to like what you're talking about. But the interesting thing is 
if you really want to get started or you just need to be able to buy something in cash quickly at those price points, like you can be extremely flexible and your risk is so low. Like what's the worst that can happen with a $50,000 house? Like as long as you don't buy a property that like requires the EPA to come in and certify that you've removed like some gas drums or something like, I I don't think you're going to end up in too bad a shape on a $50,000 house. So a lot of times people look at places and they just think about like where they would want to live. You know, like when we're talking about Boston versus maybe as a little bit more random town in Connecticut, but realistically, if you're just talking about buy and hold, cash flowing, you don't even really care about appreciation. You don't necessarily have to care about too much as long as the town is enough size where it's not going to turn to a complete ghost town. And a lot of times in those smaller towns, also people don't have the finances to buy a home. So the rental market's really good because no one can get a loan. And I mean, for some people listening to this, you might be thinking a loan for a $50,000 house. Yes, there's a lot of parts of this country where people need a loan for a fifty, sixty thousand dollar house. It's way too much money they would ever be able to to come up with, and they don't have the credit to do so. So, yeah, I mean, some of these small towns, you might think, well, I'd never want to live there, but it could be a great place to buy a property. I think something you just said there, and this is so important, and I only have experience in rental real estate right now. I haven't done a flip. I haven't done really anything else. I haven't done like a syndication. I've only done rental real estate, but like you said. I don't care how much my property appraises for at all. Like the only reason I bought the properties was for the monthly cash flow. It's like, if even if it went up a hundred thousand dollars or down $50,000, it doesn't affect me. Like I, I don't want to sell the properties. I've already gone through the process of doing the due diligence and something interesting that you just mentioned, like even if the economy crashes and, you know, people start fleeing that place, I'm sure there are examples where people are gonna be like, Cody, you're an idiot for saying this, but there is really never going to be a point in time where a place that's renting for a thousand is just all of a sudden going to rent for $400. But usually if you bump your rent down by like 20, 25% in a bad market time, like you're going to get renters in there. People do need a place to live, especially in a place like America right now is like expanding. We're still building like crazy. There's a housing shortage. Like in the worst case scenario there, you know, maybe I have to reduce my rents to 900 or 800 in that 1000 rent per unit example that I was just using. But I, yeah, I just think that's such a, that's such a powerful way to frame it. Justin is like, if you're just doing rental real estate, it really doesn't matter at all. Obviously, you want to get the best price possible, but as long as the, the cash flow is covering the mortgage, covering all the other random expenses that come with owning a house, you're going to be making money. Like No matter how popular the area gets, no matter how much appreciation that property is going to get, you're going to be making money month over month. So for those of you interested in rental real estate, like hopefully you can kind of shift your mindset like that because I am not a gambler on appreciation at all. The reason I bought the properties was I took a hard look at the numbers. What can I reasonably get here for rent? What's the worst case scenario if there is a market crash? If I do have to reduce my rents by, you know, 25% to get renters in there, is this thing still going to be making money? And that was the reason why I hopped to Connecticut because I have have a buffer over that 1% rule. Definitely some food for thought. And it was definitely not a mindset I adopted until probably like a year or two ago. I was like, hold on a second. Like, I don't care if this thing goes from three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars. Yes, it's awesome. And if I needed to liquidate that property, I'd get a ton of equity. But it's just not something that's in my plan right now. It's not part of my strategy. Another powerful thing with real estate, and it kind of goes back to one of the negatives I said about rent. I said, you know, one of the only things I really have to worry about is inflation. You know, when you purchase a house, there is no such thing as inflation on your mortgage. You've locked it in. You've locked in that price. So no matter what happens in the future, no matter you know, how much rent goes up, no matter how much, you know, the housing market goes up, your rate doesn't change. You get to lock that in for 30 years. And there's not many things that 
you in this world you can do that with. You can say, you know what, for the next 30 years, this asset will not get more expensive for me. So that's definitely a very powerful thing. And then obviously, you know, there's leverage, right? There's, you can't go and I guess there are some ways it's not easy or maybe advisable to, to leverage stocks so you can buy more stocks. There technically are some ways, but it, it's it's not as safe of a thing to do as it is in real estate. Like to be able to go buy a $450,000 property for whether it's 90000 if you need the 20% down or if you're doing the FHA loan, you're going to be living in it and you need the $16,000 down. To buy an asset worth that much for such a small piece is pretty incredible and pretty powerful. I mean, it's absolutely one of the reasons why I continue to, to look and try to figure out something that I'm comfortable with as far as real estate. I try to, I tell lots of people about it, the pros about it, try to get them interested in it. I just unfortunately haven't really hit that spot in life where everything's lined up for me. Definitely a good point, and leverage can be an awesome tool, but be wary because you don't want to find yourself in hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt just to buy some properties just because you want to get involved in real estate. You definitely do your due diligence and do your homework. So I just thought I'd name a couple of things that I wish I knew when I first started my real estate journey because it has been definitely up and down. It's been generally up, which has been good, but I've been learning. And it's kind of crazy as someone who does have a financial independence podcast that I would be making all these mistakes and not knowing all this stuff. But I think we've talked about it before, Justin, just like the nuance in every deal, you just can't cover it. And you could do a hundred podcasts and then you could have something come up that you've never heard of before. So the first thing I'll say is... LLC versus not LLC. So I was hell bent on buying properties in an LLC and I had no idea that the lenders were different for LLCs. Like if you are, if you're buying a property in the name of an LLC, you have to use a commercial lender, no residential lender. Maybe there are exceptions, but all of the ones I was talking to would not lend to an LLC. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll, you know, buy the properties in my name then. And then I'll do a quick claim deed and send them over to the LLC. And what I didn't know is that a lot of places the investment property rate is like 2% higher than what a residential mortgage rate was. So it was just like, I had no clue what I was doing. And I was talking to all these different lenders and I don't want to be like pushing the buttons of my lenders, like telling them, Oh, sorry, now I'm going to go over to this lender or, you know, now I'm going to go over to this lender. Cause I'm not going to pay 5% on a mortgage. So ended up on those first couple of properties. I mean, I wish I could go back in time and undo what I did, but ended up having to get a commercial loan for them because I was just scrambling, didn't really know what I was doing. And I didn't want to back out of the close and lose my earnest money deposit. So yeah, ended up having to get commercial loans for those first few because I just, again, didn't really know what I was doing. And I was so I was so bent on getting them into an LLC. And the reason for that, well, just one, my girlfriend and I were kind of managing it together. We wanted to kind of keep everything clean because it's, if you do want to, you know, scale up at one point, I know there are arguments for both ways. If you have a couple of rental properties, it might be fine just keeping them in your name. But if you, I want to scale this thing up, probably I'm going to keep Looking at real estate is going to be part of my master plan, if you will. So I want to keep that separate. But another cool thing is like you can open a solo 401k through an LLC if you create one. And ultimately, once you get enough money in a solo 401k, like you can start doing flips inside your solo 401k. Like I could literally buy a house as like Cody Berman solo 401k trust and do a flip in there and there's no tax. I could go buy a rental real estate property and rent it out. There's no tax on that income. Um, So that was the ultimate plan, but I wish I was more thoughtful about it, I guess. I wish I asked the right questions in all these different real estate groups because it would have saved me a lot of time and money. So for anyone who does want to kind of do the same path I'm doing, the best bet is probably buy the property in your name, do what's called the quick claim deed, which now you can transfer ownership over to your LLC. And that way you can guess the you can get the best rate. You can still kind of keep everything within that LLC shell. The next thing was just like all the things that happen at transition, which I never, ever would have thought about. Like 
I mean, there's obviously like setting up payments and leases and all that stuff. But then there's like changing all the locks out. Then there's like transferring all the services. If you have an owner meter, you got to transfer that over. If there's trash services, there's snow plowing. If there's landscaping, depending on what area of the country you're in. There's just so many things that with this first property, I'm just scrambling. Like I was in a panic. And, you know, it was my first property too. So I just, I was trying to get everything done like as fast as possible, like working super late, just start trying to figure everything out. But so that, that would, that's another word of advice. Like try to think about and figure out, like make a little laundry list, make a to-do list of, okay, once this property closes, like bang, 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 these are all the things I'm going to have to do. Because just because it's going to, one, lessen the mental load and two, you won't be forgetting stuff, scrambling, doing things super last minute. And that was something that just, oh man, it sucked. I'm like, oh my God, like I have to change all the locks now. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. And the last little nugget that's coming to mind here is that literally everything is negotiable. This goes from buying the property to tenants to everything. Like everything is negotiable. And I never would have kind of challenged myself to negotiate on, you know, pricing on leases with tenants unless I was kind of in the space doing my homework. But, you know, for example, like the property that we're in right now ended up appraising low, just it was an appraisal company that was like notorious for low appraisals. And I'm like, oh man, like this is going to suck because we're gonna have to come up with the difference between the appraisal and what the asking price was. And, you know, we ended up negotiating, getting 10 grand off of the purchase price. The one of the, the second property we bought in Connecticut needed some work. It wasn't that much work, but I was like, let's see how much we can get kind of off the top ended up getting a $15,000 discount. Like that, those are big numbers. And all it takes is just like an ask. All it takes is an email or, you know, one sentence that you're really nervous about saying in person to someone. And I know that's just something that I had just kind of stepped out of my comfort zone. And it's, it's really, really helped. And like I said, it doesn't have to be just on the purchase price, like negotiations, like I said, with tenants, negotiations with brokers, like with a real estate agent, like maybe you can take some of their commission off depending on the market, probably not in this market, but Literally everything's negotiable. I guess that's that's kind of the last the last big lesson that I've learned that I would like for other people to internalize a bit. No, that's a great list. I mean, especially since you're so fresh to this, you're coming off of buying some of these properties. I'm sure sometimes when you're talking to somebody who really has all their systems set up and they've kind of forgotten what it was like to, you know, to feel those pains and, and you're a lot closer to it. So you're able to share some of those things that is probably overlooked by a lot of people. Um, and when you talk about feeling comfortable, you know, that's kind of the last thing I was going to talk about is there are other ways to get into real estate if you are not comfortable with this whole process. Two of the things that I have used is REITs, which is basically like an, an index fund for properties so that you can, you know, invest almost just like you're buying a stock and you get exposure to the real estate market that way. And then the other thing that I've tried recently, just this year, was actually with Alex. You know, Alex talked about buying this big property, 50 plus unit property in North Carolina, and he did it through a syndication. So he raised money through other investors. And so I threw $30,000 in the pot towards the investment. And now, you know, the way this has worked is, uh, and what I appreciate about Alex was he's very conservative with everything. He sets a preferred payout rate. So if it's more than that, if the returns are better than that, he holds them kind of till the end of the year, just in case maybe the second quarter is low, for instance. And then that way you always get that, at least that what you, you know, not you weren't promised, but what you expected. And then at the end of the agreement, which there's no firm date on with this one, but when it is sold, you know, we have projections of when we think we want to sell it then you get some extra profits that way. And you also, you know, in this, you really get to learn a lot more than you would in REITs, not as much as you would if you're going out to buy a property yourself. 
but you know, you get a K-1, you get to look at the underwriting, you get to look at vacancy rates and look at remodeling costs and all that sort of thing. So you, you can really learn a lot with very little risk and very little knowledge needed because you're riding the back of somebody else who has all the experience and has put the team together. Obviously, your, your profits wouldn't be as much as you, it would be if you could do it all yourself. But, you know, it's, it's not bad. and It gets you some exposure outside of just your standard stock market and you get to learn a lot. And one last thing on that negotiation thing. So here's something that I just went out on a limb and I'm like, I'm going to try this and let's see if it works. So literally every property that I bought, we inherited some tenants that actually we inherited tenants at all of them, but they weren't fully occupied. So we might've got like one tenant in a three unit. Nobody was paying via online. Like everyone was paying check or cash. And I'm like, this is not 1983. This is 2021. And plus I'm an hour away. Like I am just going to be really insistent about setting up online payments. And, you know, people in the area were like, oh, people from this area don't do online payments, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, you know, I'm just going to keep insisting. And as of today, I have every single one of my tenants set up on online payments. And some of these people were literally like Venmo, cash, like the craziest stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to be driving to their door on the first. And other real estate investors might be laughing at me, maybe depending on your area. But, you know, that was just a big push. So for those of you who are obsessed with trying to make it as passive as possible, I think the two big things that I've done, build a team and then do, do those automatic payments. So you're not knocking on the door on the first, getting that rent check or that cash or, hey, Venmo me. <laughs> but alrighty, Justin, any closing thoughts on real estate? You know, what are the next couple of years going to look like for you? I know you, like you said, you do have automated email set up. Do you think you got one in the horizon? You know, I think I probably will end up buying one and I think it'll probably be back in Mississippi just so again, I can have that next level of exposure, but with not very much risk at all because the price point would be so low. But on the same hand, you know, I know that there's a very high likelihood that in the next couple of years, we will be traveling a ton and we will not have a home base. And so if I am getting into real estate, it will almost certainly be long distance real estate. Like I will not have the opportunity to be near the properties that, that I'm written out. Building out that team. <laughs> For me, I think I'm going to continue investing in rental real estate, but I'm also maybe going to dabble in some flips. Like I said, I've been building out teams and now I have like solid contractors. Like I think I could probably swing it and I definitely have to do more research. It'd be my first flip ever, but there's a lot of money in the market right now. And especially with the way that houses are appreciating, I'm like, I should probably hop on this trend. And again, it's like kind of scary. It's almost like the crypto thing. It's like, you know, it's just going berserk right now. Like, do I want to hop on it? and put a significant amount of money on, well, I'm not going to do that in crypto, but it is a big risk. Like if the market crashes and I have, you know, a hundred plus thousand dollars in a property and then I can't sell it for anywhere near I bought it for, that is not going to be a good investment. So we'll kind of see what the rest of 2021 shakes out to be, but that is probably going to be on the horizon. And I will definitely keep all of you listeners updated whenever we talk about real estate in another episode. And I do know we have a ton of real estate investors that are listeners that are a part of the Five Show Facebook group. If you're not a part of the group, definitely join it at the show.com slash community. But let's start a conversation. Like I'd be super interested to hear what people are doing in the real estate space. There's so many different ways to make money. I mean, just between Justin and myself, he's done a syndication. I've done rental real estate. But then there's also self-storage. There's also flips. There's also house hacking. There's also so many different ways to make money, probably ones we haven't even heard about before. I know land investing is a thing I've heard about on podcasts. And yeah, let's just, let's start a conversation. I'm really, really curious to hear what all you five show listeners are doing in the real estate arena. If any, maybe you're just buying REITs. Any way you cut it, you can still make money in real estate. 
And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.